Well, I would like to add my welcome to the one Joel gave you earlier. As you said, my name is John Colburn. I'm the minister to Congregational Life and Outreach here at Grace, and we're really grateful that you're here to worship with us tonight. It's my privilege to be opening the word with you. If you're new to Grace, if you're visiting with us, if you haven't been here much this summer, we are uh, in the middle of a, a sermon series through the Psalms. It's a practice of ours every summer. Uh, this summer, we're looking at a particular thematic group of songs called the Psalms of Creation. Uh, the Psalms of Creation. So our text tonight is from Psalm 77. And as is our practice, before I read our text from Psalm 77, we are going to hear a reading from the New Testament. So if you would read for us, Becca. Tonight's New Testament reading is from Romans 4, verses 16 through 24 or 5. Till it feels good. Till it feels good. Okay. (laughs) That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thank you, Becca. And then from Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jejuthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. My spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? 
Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we come to your word. We come to it because in it you've promised to reveal yourself to us. We ask that you would do so, that you would capture our attention, that you would reveal your glory, that you would capture our hearts, our souls, our emotions, our strength, that you would knit us into what you would have us be. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. So, We, April and I, have an 11-month-old, soon to be a year old, and uh, that means that the Spotify stations in our house work a little bit differently than they did about a year ago. Um, There's this kind of cycle of rotation. It is now predicting that I'm very interested in children's music when it just guesses what I would like to listen to. And there's a song that comes up from uh, this... uh, I only know because the album artwork pops up on our television, but from like a Baby Einstein album and it's called Going on a Bear Hunt. Is anyone familiar with Going on a Bear Hunt? It's an old kind of poem and rhyme. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. I'm not scared. What a beautiful day. Oh, look, it's a wide river. Now, can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. Anybody know? Gotta go through it. You've got to go through it. Psalm 77, at its core, is a psalm about going through it. A song about going right through it. When we read the psalms, you know, it's, it's easy, easy sometimes to approach them like you might a passage from Romans or a passage from Isaiah or a passage from Genesis, but there are some different elements to reading poetry. This is a poem. This is a song. This is a prayer. You know, the Psalms are the words that we can use when we don't have words. And for me, in my life, Psalm 77 has been those very words in moments where I don't have words. So I'm excited to open it together with you tonight. You notice that I made a point to, to read the introduction. It's a, it says it's a Psalm of Asaph. 
Now, I don't think Asaph gets as much credit as he deserves. Everyone talks about David, and most people remember the son of Korah. Uh, But Asaph wrote 12 psalms as well. Um, He wrote Psalm 50, and then a little book of psalms uh, from 73 to 83. And something that I have found about Asaph, we learned from the prophets a little bit about who Asaph was. He was the choir leader, the choir master under David. He was a respected prophet, a a respected poet, a respected musician. And I think those things come through very clearly in a lot of Asaph's psalms. Um, One of the things that, uh, as I grew up a male in the uh, late 20, early 21st century, late 20th century, Um, One of the things that I can struggle with sometimes is identifying all of my emotions (laughs) internally. And at one point, I uh, I was sitting down with someone to help me think through some of these things, and they handed me a a feelings wheel. Uh, And it was like, hey, you know, you can't say you feel bad. Uh, You can't say you feel angry. Like, you're going to have to give me a little more context for bad or or angry. Uh, I bring that up because Asaph is just not the kind of guy that needed a feelings wheel. Um, Asaph's poems, the Psalms of Asaph, are deep and rich. Uh, They are unbelievably introspective. Um, This is a man who knows grief. This is a man who knows doubt. This is a man who knows fear. Um, This is a man who knows frustration. Um, This is a man who knows great joy and jubilation. And I I really feel like his Psalms in particular capture a lot of those things. Um, And Psalm 77 uh, is no exception. So as we work through the Psalm, Um, I want to share with you what we are going to try to see. Um, So if you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to hear this. What this psalm, what Psalm 77 really invites us to, is that because God is the creator, you can put your hope in God to make a way, even when it leads through the sea. That because God is the creator, you can put your hope in God to make a way, even when it leads through the sea. So some things as we work through Psalm 77 that I want you guys to keep an eye out for, and some things that might be helpful for you as you read this. Um, you know, in poetry, you have a lot of images. You have some pictures, uh, and Asaph is no, no, no exception, and sometimes it can help to know the way that the Bible uses certain themes and pictures throughout it, so, so we're going to walk through a couple of those things. Something that you see in Psalm 77, um, and some of the things that even our translators can struggle to get in, uh, in these first three verses, you'll see, uh, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, and at night my hand is stretched. But even those two phrases, in the day of my trouble, uh, you could translate it in the straits of my trouble, the, the features of kind of uh, a dangerous sort of passage of water through a couple of rocks, right? Um, it says, in the night my hand is stretched. And again, in the Hebrew, it's hard to translate it perfectly, but it basically says, my hand flowed. So there's these water metaphors happening right at the beginning uh, of the passage, and you'll actually see those all throughout Psalm 77. So keep your eyes out for for water language. And um, just as a reminder, I think Joel has talked about this a few times in the past couple weeks, but when when water shows up in the scriptures, um, it it means a few things. Water water often represents chaos. it often represents the, you know, the, the winds and the rain, the, the dangers of being at sea in the scriptures. A lot of the ancient people were afraid of the oceans because to leave land was to take a risk. Uh, it represented chaos. It was unpredictable. Um, sometimes it represents power, uh, that there's a real strength behind the waves, that rushing water can't be resisted. Sometimes it represents boundaries. Think about the way uh, previously, before airplanes and all these other things, the waters were the border of the world. 
To look across the ocean was to look across an unquenchable boundary. It limited where you could go and where you could be. So the waters were often boundaries. Um, and then not least of all, uh, even as we have most recently been aware of, like, it was dangerous, and at times it, created, it, it hid monsters. There were myths about whales and, and, and dragons and all sorts of things that would live in the seas. Um, to put it simply, it was a fearful thing. So when you see the waters, they are the things that Asaph fears. Another theme that we will hear is the word remember. So there will be great waters we will hear remember. You know, we're not great at remembering. I think most of you would be embarrassed for me um, and maybe embarrassed for April about how much of my time is spent going back to the place I just left because my wallet, my, well, my keys often I can remember because I'm driving, but my keys or my phone are where I just was. Um, jumping Joel says quite often is that uh, as Christian people, we need to be reminded more uh, than we need to be informed. Um, and I think we'll see in Psalm 77, uh, as, as Asaph calls to mind the idea of remembering, that he ties agony and doubt directly with this process of forgetting. That his agony and his doubt are tied to his inability to remember. So cue an eye out for that. And the last thing we'll see is the passivity of Asaph. So when, when he uses verbs about I, you'll see that they are, they're passive words. He's waiting, he's meditating, he's doing all these different things. But we will see the activity of God. There's a sharp contrast between Asaph feeling powerless and God being powerful. Um, and at first, even his frustration with God's power not being brought on, on his behalf. So look for those things. So look for the waters, look for remember, and look for God's activity and, and Asaph's inactivity. All right, so we're going to start in uh, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it again. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So there's some things that I want to credit Asaph for. I feel like when I am in the day of my trouble, I rarely remember to cry aloud to God, aloud to God. But what we see is, is near panic in Asaph. Have you ever felt that moment when you were just kind of shouting out for help? And you don't know if anyone's listening, if anyone can hear you, you just shout and shout and shout and shout. He asks, he calls, and he cries. Then he says this piece about, my soul refuses to be comforted. I think many of you may know how Asaph felt. Have you ever been so upset, so frustrated, so disappointed that you didn't even want to be comfortable, to be comforted? You wanted to wallow in it. You wanted to sit in it. I remember once when I was eight years old, this is a silly example, but I fell into a rose bush uh, chasing a, a baseball, and I was like laying in this rose bush, and any time I moved my arms or my legs, everything hurt worse, so I just wanted to lay there and be still. The feeling of even fighting back or moving towards freedom, getting out of the thorns, felt like it would hurt worse, so I stayed still. Have you ever been so hurting or uncomfortable that you refuse to be comforted? I have. And then another thing we see is that as he thinks about God, the thing that, in theory, uh, as, as God's people should bring us hope in life, it actually just furthers the spiral into despair. Something is wrong. 
All right, look with me at four through nine. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Again, I think uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago talking about sleeping, but there are times when the darkest parts of the night uh, are the times when all of your fears, your anxieties, the things that you are most afraid of come rushing forward. Uh, the sleeplessness of Asaph, that God holds his eyes open. We know that. And then he says he's, he's speechless, which is interesting because I, you know, he's been shouting aloud to God, maybe that's why. Um, but he finds himself unable to speak. Look at five through six. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. You know, there's a little bit in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter where there's a certain spell. You don't have to worry about all this. There's a certain spell where you have to remember a, a, a happy memory for it to work. And the main character, the protagonist of the story, really struggles to put his mind on any sort of memory that could make the spell work. Anything happy and confident. That's where Asaph is here. He's searching his mind for a day when he didn't feel like this, and nothing is coming to the surface. He doesn't have a happy memory to look back on. Seven through nine. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I don't know about you, but again, Asaph is giving words to questions that at times I haven't been bold enough to. I remember a time I went swimming uh, in the dark. It was a terrible idea. We were at uh, a friend's pool at their neighborhood, uh, and it was a very, very large pool, and um, I had only had glasses in high school, and I can't see a lick without my glasses. Like, I can't walk to the bathroom without my glasses. So, uh, Needless to say, I took off my glasses and jumped into a dark pool in the middle of the night, and I am, I'm swimming across to the other side, and I'm actually genuinely getting a little nervous. I don't know where I'm going. I can't see anything, and there's this kind of moment right at the end where I, I'm, like, really frustrated and a little nervous, and I can't quite breathe, and I, I feel the ground, like, right under my feet, and just, I remember feeling that sigh of relief that I could stand up. I hadn't even realized that there was something firm under me. I wasn't in the deep end again. These questions here in 7, 8, and 9, one of the things that I've found, and one of the things that I would argue you guys will find as you follow the Lord, is that fearing to ask these questions, sometimes, it can really rob you of the blessings and the answers that you're looking for. Being afraid to voice them, afraid to grapple with them, afraid to wrestle with them. At times, if you won't go there, you won't taste it. You won't see it. And I know this because Asaph's showing the exact same thing. He asks these questions, and then there's the break. And in verse 10, everything will change. You know, sometimes when I think we go through really tragic, complicated, painful, difficult situations as we're following Jesus, it can be hard to know, should I pray for the very unlikely thing? Should I vocally talk about the ways that I want the Lord to do this seemingly impossible thing for, for me? Because what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't? Will people now feel like God isn't real? Will people take my story and use that as a reason to doubt God? 
I've felt that. I've not asked for things because I was afraid to put God in a corner. The Lord doesn't need you to protect his reputation. He doesn't. He's the same God he's always been. And that means not only do we have to be afraid of everyone else's questions, we don't have to be afraid of our own questions. The Lord doesn't get frustrated or confused when we can't understand what he's doing. He knows we can't understand everything he's doing. And Asaph's willingness to dive into these questions, I believe, is part of why we get verses 10 through 15. So let's look at them next. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. So another thing that I know we've talked about a little bit around grace is the ways that in times of doubt, in times of fear, in times of pain, we can be really tempted to kind of curve in on ourselves. And I think you see in the first nine verses the way that Asaph's feelings are curved in on himself. He can't find rest. He can't remember. He can't put his fingers on joy. Why doesn't God actually care about him? Verse 10, you begin to see a little straightening in Asaph's back, a little looking up, out, back to remember. One of the best ways to become uncurved on yourself is to look back. When you remember what the Lord has done for you and for others, when you remember what people have done for you and for others, you'll be surprised how quickly all that self-doubt, frustration, fear, anger, doubt can fade. It's a great way to turn our backs up. A way that Charles Spurgeon said it was this. When faith has seven years of famine like Jacob, uh, or sorry, like Joseph. Memory, like Joseph's granaries in Egypt, opens the way forward. When we find seven years of famine in our life of faith, when we find ourselves frustrated, confused, unsure of where the Lord is, it is memory often that holds the stores of hope for those days, for those moments, if we will look back and remember. For the psalmist here, uh, all this water language, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, to most interpreters that he, he, he tries to bring up the memory of the Exodus. That God's people fleeing from slavery with Egypt's uh, armies at their back, they come up against the Red Sea, the boundaries, the chaos. Remember everything we talked about, about what the waters mean, the power, everything. They have their backs to Egypt, their fronts to boundaried power and chaos containing multitudes of monsters. And he remembers that God springs into the waters and he spread them. Indeed, the deep trembled. When the waters saw you, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The clouds poured out their water. The skies gave forth thunder. He's, he's calling to mind the ways that God's people have moved 
through the water, through the chaos, through the power, through the water, from slavery into freedom, from chaos into order, from light into, or from dark into light, uh, and, and really poignantly for, for the Israeli people, from retreat into victory. Rather than running, uh, the, the sea closed in behind them, and they were now a people free uh, of their captors in Egypt. This isn't even the only time uh, in the Old Testament where God uses waters to deliver his people. First, obviously Noah in the judgment of the flood, and yet on the boat, Noah and his family ride above the chaos and are delivered into life. Again, you might remember uh, later after the Exodus when God's people stand at the borders of the Jordan, and it is only by crossing the Jordan, something that seems simple but needs all of God's power, that they can step into the promised land. There are many other places in the Old Testament, but consistently God delivers his people through the water. So those are the ways that the psalm moves. It moves from Asaph's self-doubt and pain to the to the moment of realizing that I, I can't find even a memory of God's faithfulness, to this moment of boldness, I am willing to kind of ask these questions of God to this final move of, yes, a God, this is the God, the creator God, who has made a way for his people. Will he not make a way for me? So there are those movements in the psalm, and there are ways that this prayer, this hymn, This song that we would sing is meant to draw us in, like a mirror, to see ourselves more clearly as we follow the same path that God's people have always followed. So I want to take a few moments to try to apply these pictures, these movements, and this beautiful song to your hearts. Let's start here. For those who walk or stare into the deep waters of pain, grief, loss and hopelessness. Remember, remember that the God of creation has gone before you. Remember that the God of creation has gone before you. One of the great joys of the Christian life is that we actually don't have to be afraid to call evil and agony and pain the things that they are. Because by naming them, we actually don't have to give them power. We know theirs is not the day. The day is the Lord's. So rather than putting on a mask or acting like everything is just okay, Christianity actually gives us the power and the voice to name evil, to name pain, to name despair. Because through it, the Lord can deliver us. That's a great joy and a great peace. And we can do that because the God of creation has gone before us. Remember what it says here at the end. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Lord is our shepherd. David would say that in Psalm 23. Jesus will say that in John 10, that he serves as our shepherd. Um, The psalmist in, 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 in Psalm 139 will say that there's nowhere I can flee from your presence. Why should this give us hope? Because that means if the path ahead contains violence, distastefulness, agony, heartbreak, Even when we encounter those things, it cannot, does not mean that God is not with us. These are the places where God has gone. Because in Jesus, he entered into these places. He has gone before us and was with us always, even to the end of the age. So those who stare into the deep waters of pain, grief, loss, hopelessness, remember that the God of creation has gone before you. Next. 
for those who are buffeted by cycles of doubt and chaos. Remember that the God of creation is the one who calms the seas. Another time, again, where we see Jesus' power, his disciples on the boat, the storm begins to raise. They say, don't you even care about us, God? Jesus then speaks to the storm, as we've talked about, a common refrain within the Psalms is God's power over the waters. And here in Jesus, we begin to see the God who quiets the storms. Even the waters and seas obey him. So if Jesus calms the seas and creation bends to his will, then whether it's the seas or your financial circumstances or the, the, the job that you hope to get that you didn't get or the, everything that just doesn't seem like it can possibly work out, this is the Lord of creation after all. Everything is creation. He can calm the seas. And not only that, he's promised to bring us peace. So for those buffeted by cycles of doubt and chaos, remember the God of creation can calm the seas. And then third, for those of us, and I'm including myself here at times, who do not see a way forward, who don't know where the path will lead, who stand metaphorically and sometimes actually on the banks of the Red Sea, not knowing where to go. Remember, remember, remember that the God of creation has always made a way for his people. He's always made a way for his people. There's a, there's a pattern in storytelling called deus ex machina. It's a Latin term. It means the God of the machine. And a lot of people think that's a particularly bad move of storytelling. They, they use it as an illustration that an author or a movie maker has kind of written themselves into the corner, and they had to do this sort of miraculous thing to free up the rest of their plot, to, to save their story from, from the mistakes that they made by painting their characters in, into this corner. A, a famous example would be from uh, what some people would call the most perfect movie of all time. Not necessarily me, but some people. Um, Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Perfect movie, right? Uh, well, we'll see. But Indiana Jones, fighting the Nazis, does all these things, goes through the cove, looking for the Ark of the Covenant. In the end, he's captured. He has the Ark of the Covenant, the Nazis capture him, and they open it up, and the wrath of God strikes all of his foes out of nowhere, completely unbeknownst to anyone. There's not really even any foreshadowing. It just kind of happens. And for whatever reason, Indiana knows to look away. No one tells him that, nothing. Like, and everyone's like, what is that? That doesn't even make sense. You know, like, there's no foreshadowing. You didn't, you didn't add up to any of that. Here's the deal. One of the reasons we don't like those stories is because more and more and more and more we've come to believe that there aren't things beyond the created world. That there isn't an author who bends creation to his will. That everything actually is in our power or in our hands. That the character has to know and have control of his circumstances or else what's the even meaning of a story? Like, we can't have a God that just swoops in and frees his people, can we? Can we? Can we? It's only a silly way to end a story if there's no God who moves in history. It's only foolish and unsatisfying if we deny that there's an author above it all. One of the great powers of being an author, like God is the author of all creation, is that creation bends and shapes itself to your will. There is no corner you can paint yourself into that God can't write you out of. That is what he's here for. And it's really easy for us to forget that creation is his. So when you can't see a way, know that at times, always, for his people, he has made one. And that often, 
as the second piece. They go through the sea. So let's talk about this very specifically in the way that Jesus Christ brings us hope. So how is the way through the sea? I think first we see it in Jesus' baptism. He goes before us into the Jordan where he meets John the Baptist and he's dunked into the Jordan and he comes out and the Spirit of God falls on him and dwells in him and the Lord says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In the Jordan, the Lord Jesus finally delivers his people through the Jordan into the promised land. God's path, Jesus' path for us is into the waters and through the waters into the promised land. His path is not around, but it's through. Remember when he walks on water. The disciples are afraid that they are going to sink. Jesus, in the chaos, walks through the chaos. It's his power to deliver them through it. It's not around the chaos or next to the chaos. Jesus himself goes right through the chaos, walking on the most tumultuous of waters to show that he is the one through the storm he delivers his people. Right through the very center of the storm is where Jesus goes first. And then finally, and you probably don't even need me to say this, but it's my job. On the cross, he goes through death for you and me. The way to life is not around death, under death, above death. It's right there through death in the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. He makes a way. So I want you guys to remember when it doesn't seem like there's a way. The God of creation, he's the one who has always made a way for his people. And at times it's right through the sea. I can't know what all the seas you guys are facing down and all those different things, but I want you to hear me say with my heart and soul, it's through the sea that he makes his way. And I've seen it and I've tasted it. And Asaph has too. Those are the hopes that will bring us to this table. It's actually a perfect way to end. It always is. It's a perfect way to end. Why? Because we come to this table every single week as an invitation. An invitation to look back, to remember all the things that Jesus has done for us. The way that he came in a human body, the way that he died and rose and invites us into new life. It's a reminder to not look in, but to look up. To know that you come empty-handed to this table And on it sits everything you need. You don't have to bring anything to this table. You will eat and get everything you need from Jesus Christ, your Lord, right here, free of price. And it reminds us to look not in, but forward. To know that God's hope and God's promises that wait for all of us, they can be found. And you can taste it and you can see it. One of the great joys of doing this with our bodies is that sometimes our bodies are the ones that teach our hearts and our souls and our minds. Let your body be your instructor. Come and get everything you need from God and then let that be a reminder that you will get it again when you need it from him. So a few instructions about how we take communion here at Grace. Uh, You'll come to the center aisle and you'll kind of split like the Red Sea around me. You'll find uh, uh, bread and wine on the far walls. You'll find grape juice here against the stage. If you'll pick up the elements, return to your seats. We'll all take together uh, as a demonstration of the way that God has made us one in him. You don't have to be a baptized believer, or sorry, (laughs) it's exactly what you have to be. You don't have to be a uh, member or a tender. I actually did that like four years ago, and then I just did it again. You you, you don't have to be a member or a regular tender here at Grace Fellowship to, to come and have communion with us. We do ask very specifically that you've been baptized into Christ, uh, that you have gone through the waters um, and been invited to, to his table. Um, 
And then, uh, as I said, there's, uh, all of our bread is also gluten-free. So if you will join me, one thing that we would like to do uh, before we take communion is to confess the Apostles' Creed together. So if you would join me, I'll, I'll get us started. Grace Fellowship, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Those are the things that all of our hopes are in. And so Jesus, when he was in the upper room with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and be nourished in your hearts by faith. And as he did that, he took also later, he took the cup. And when he had poured it out, he said, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink and be forgiven. And Paul tells us that as often as we come to this table to eat and drink, we testify of his, retu- his death and resurrection until he comes again. Um, would you join me in prayer? Lord, even through these simple offerings uh, that you have given us in bread and wine, we find all of our life and our hope in you. We just pray that uh, in this meal you would help us remember, uh, that you would lift us up and out, that we would see hope in a God who has made a way yet again through bread and wine, through body and blood, to life everlasting and hope for all of us. Would those things sink deeply into our hearts, and would you rejoice in your people who come to your table? Amen. Um, You're welcome to come as you please.